You're listening to Green Mountain Medicine, an original podcast series by ACP Vermont for all things internal medicine. I'm Matt. I'm Dylan. And we're your hosts on tonight's show. This series aims to unpack the complexity of medicine in a nuanced and evidence-based way. And if that sounds like something you would enjoy, then we are happy you could join us. For the next half hour, we invite you to relax, grab some coffee, and engage with us as we deconstruct the topics that impact our field and characterize our practice. Hey everyone, welcome back to uh, Green Mountain Medicine. Uh, I hope you missed us, because we've definitely missed you all. So much. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so to give you everyone an update, this is our seventh episode. It is currently March of 2020, and the world has sort of been plunged into an unprecedented age of precaution and global containment efforts directed at COVID-19. Um, or colloquially known as the coronavirus. So that being said, Dylan and I thought it would be fitting to do an episode on the virus. Um, we know that this isn't supposed to be a comprehensive thing by any means, but we wanted to give our viewers a summary of the basics of what we know, from a recap of current events, a uh, summary of virology and pathophysiology of the disease, its epidemiology, the disease presentation, diagnostic workup and findings, management, and investigation of therapies, including um, the most recent ongoing clinical trials. And uh, one thing I'll add in is that Matt and I are trying our best. We are in the same location, but uh, we're attempting to uh, socially distance the proper amount. So uh, if if voices go in and out, you'll you'll know why. But uh, we also want to be compliant with all the recommendations that we've received thus far. All right. And so uh, we thought we would start off with uh, a brief summary of kind of the timeline of events uh, as we understand, uh, starting with the uh, emergence of uh, the cases in the uh, Wuhan province in China uh, up until where we are today. So it was really um, right at the end of the year of 2019, last year, um, when uh, a series of cases of atypical pneumonia uh, were reported out of uh, the Wuhan province of, of China. Um, there were several cases um, where patients were linked to um, having frequented a seafood market uh, in that province. Um, but the interest, what interesting pattern was emerging was that at a certain point, um, the uh, number of there were certain patients who were who were uh, coming up that had not been exposed to the fish market. So um, while the um, cases were said to have started uh, or had some kind of a zoonotic component given its uh, transmission through the fish market, uh, there was also a hint early on that uh, there was human to human spread given that, there was no, uh, there were certain patients who were not uh, customers of the fish market. Um, after this initial um, series of cases, uh, there was a quick work to uh, try to identify the causal pathogen. And really within a week, around January 7th, um, the uh, novel coronavirus was uh, isolated in laboratory and sequenced. And what is notable about this is that uh, coronaviruses um, are a family of viruses that isn't uh, specific to this one strain. And these have uh, been the same types of viruses that have caused 
other um, worldwide pandemics such as uh, SARS uh, in the uh, early 2000s and uh, MERS, the Middle Eastern Respiratory Virus. So uh, again, these were uh, more information kind of leading investigators to believe that we could have something serious on our hands. Uh, one interesting thing to note, uh, there's been uh, a lot of discussion about where this this particular strain of coronavirus came from and people wondering like they heard they heard it was from a bat but then it was like from a chicken or a bird and to the fish i didn't i wasn't able to find the exact um uh animal to animal transmission pattern but what i did uh discover was that the reason that uh bats in particular were implicated in uh this strain of coronavirus was because uh, when the sequencing was conducted back in early January, uh, it was found to be, uh, this particular strain was found to be most related to types of coronaviruses that uh, uh, inherently infect bats. So that was, uh, again, a little bit of clue to where this came from, but in terms of how it got uh, into the fish market and how it infected the first patients, um, I don't know, Matt, if you had seen anything else but I wasn't able to find the exact link. I think I'm on the same page. Um, research, resources I've seen also trace it to bats, um, but that was more specific to the coronaviridae as a family. In right, bats. right. Um, so, yeah. Um, so then uh, once the uh, virus had been isolated, uh, actually there was um, really quick work that uh, tests like the Chinese CDC and other labs could do to try to make some... Um, PCR-based diagnostics, those were really developed in the next week. But uh, at the same time, uh, in the in a couple ensuing days, around January 11th, was the first mortality due to this new... Uh, back then it was even called um, Wuhan pneumonia. Uh, but then at this point it was starting to become evident that it was due to the coronavirus, um, this coronavirus outbreak. So we had our first death um, reported on January 11th. And there were also, just within a couple of days after that, um, were uh, new cases being reported outside of China, uh, in Thailand, and in France. Um, so around that same time, um, the uh, WHO gave uh, this disease uh, its now uh, known name, COVID-19, um, and just to quickly clarify for anyone listening the um the fault the name is derived from coronavirus disease of 2019 one person uh i thought this meant that there or someone had told me they thought this meant that there was 18 other coronaviruses out there uh but that's not the case it's the 19th related to the year um and moving forward uh actually i I guess the first case, Matt, when was the first case recorded in the United States? I think you, you had written it down. Oh, um, that one, I believe, was in Washington? Right. Oh, and that was, oh, sorry, yes. And that was in, um, it was like late January. It was like January 27th. Um, and that was where the first cases, the first case in the United States was. Um, and then uh, things have been slowly... Uh, unfolding as it spread from and with cases popping up in the 
East Coast as well, and several in California. And some recent data that I saw um, that came out on March 12th, uh, in terms of worldwide, um, disease burden had confirmed over 120,000 cases, 14% uh, being with severe disease, 5% requiring uh, ICU treatment, 2% uh, requiring ventilator intervention, uh, and about a 1% to 3% case fatality ratio. Uh, but interestingly, uh, I think leading experts in the epidemiology uh, are thinking that our, our estimate or our, our measure of prevalence is likely far below the actual prevalence of this disease, given the amount of asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic cases that uh, can be out there. So um, kind of conservative estimates are thinking that it's probably about uh, the prevalence is probably about 10 times as high uh, as what our current numbers show. So that's kind of that kind of brings us to where we are now. Currently, um, in the United States, we have uh, just over 7,000 um, total cases of COVID-19. Uh, deaths have been about uh, almost to 100. And uh, this is, um, it looks like there's only been a couple states maybe on this map here that haven't reported a case yet, but pretty much the majority of um, states in the country have reported at least one case of COVID-19. Yeah, and that's, that's really, uh, it's really interesting how quickly this virus has spread. Um, from a government and federal perspective, Dylan, um, have, you, have you sort of seen like different trends and how um, different governments are responding to this? Well, yeah. Um, actually, before I get into that, I just noticed you, pu you pulled up the, the newest newest numbers, which actually has now a total case number of 10,442 and deaths at 150. So uh, that's actually maybe, that's, that's about on track for the same, the same percentages that uh, correlate with the numbers I had given, but this is now uh, showing that the, the curve is really expanding at um, the same rate as it has been over the past couple of days. Um, now back to your other question, Matt, sorry for interrupting. Um, I mean, we have heard about the differences in responses um, between countries like China and South Korea versus Italy. Uh, and really, I think the um, response by South Korea to really engage in a um, full on almost military style lockdown uh, has really helped them mitigate the um, the spread of uh, disease and and flatten the curve, um, as you will. Uh, whereas I think the story in Italy is really what is um, kind of putting the the public into panic um, as an example of what uh, could happen or could have happened uh, if these policies of social distancing were not uh, implemented. So. Uh, there's definitely lessons to be learned from both um, in terms of uh, um, one model to strive for and one model to avoid, but we also need to recognize our own country's uh, you know, individual uh, needs. I think that's why um, we're somewhere in the middle uh, try, trying to be responsible, but uh, not really willing to, at this point to undergo the full uh, military level lockdown. Style lockdown, I should say.
right? I think that's something that we've seen um, has sort of varied from state to state. Um, it definitely seems like the federal government has um, is continuing to allow states to sort of implement their own measures. Um, and so definitely certain states, I know parts of California, for example, um, have issued kind of like uh, shelter-in-place orders um, where they've closed all businesses and non-essential personnel are essentially banned from leaving their house um, aside from traveling to the grocery store or the pharmacies um, or critical critical functions. Uh, in the meantime, from a federal level, we do see guidelines from the CDC recommending um, that gatherings for the time being will be limited to 10 people or less um, with a very high likelihood that that might change um, or the extension of their guidelines might, might change in the near future. Uh, the other thing that's sort of interesting, it's kind of new on the horizon, is uh, congressional movement or congressional action to uh, possibly send out stimulus checks to Americans. Yeah, you were telling me about that, Matt, and uh, I'm curious to see how this unfolds. Definitely. Um, it'd be interesting to see if everyone gets gets money, but there's nowhere to spend it. Um, not sure how that'll play out. But that's something to keep in mind uh, for the near future. And actually, one other thing, just for any listeners uh, who are uh, not as connected with the um, College of Medicine or kind of the general med school, um, medical school actions, but the uh, AAMC has uh, released a, a guidance that all um, clinical activities for medical students uh, should be suspended for the next couple of weeks. The Larner College of Medicine has implemented this policy. Um, last that we were told, um, all clinical activities would be suspended until April 6th. Um, this kind of correlates with um, when some of the members of our class were going to be starting their fourth year acting internships. Um, and then actually the uh, class of 2022, uh, they were going to um, be starting their uh, third year clerkships actually a week after that anyway on um, April 13th. So uh, these these dates are in flux. Um, it's good to know, it's comforting that, or it's it's good to see that our, you know the school is following uh, the guidelines uh, from above. And I think, I don't know about you, Matt, I think that these dates could honestly be subject to change. And there's a, probably a pretty high likelihood that they get pushed out further, but it all really does come down to how much more information we gather in the next couple of weeks. Oh, no, I totally agree. I think we'll, where um, you know our all of our most recent models up until recently have shown that we've been approximately two weeks behind from Italy, um, and so seeing how um, how they're responding to the crisis there, um, the Italian government actually just I think today um, decided to extend the the national lockdown. So um, it'll I think only time will tell whether yeah. our social distancing measures will um, be effective enough to allow us to kind of alleviate. The situation before it hits a climax. Yeah. Okay. Well, so let's talk about the virology and the virulence of SARS-CoV-2, since that's something that I think um, isn't really discussed very commonly. So taking everybody back to kind of like step one land, <laughs> um, we're starting with the family of viruses known as the coronaviridae, right? So the, the coronaviridae um, or the coronaviruses are positive sense single-stranded RNA viruses. They're enveloped and encapsulated viruses. Um, and within this family of viruses uh, is the SARS coronavirus 2 or SARS-CoV-2, which is the virus that has been implicated in the disease known as COVID-19. 
Now, um, SARS-CoV-2 stands for Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus 2. And our genomic sequencing reveals that it is, close, is most closely related to a uh, corona strain that is found in bats. Yeah, hence the, the bat connection that everyone seems to be wondering if people were eating bats or you know how the bats got involved. This is, at least uh, from the scientific level, how bats are implicated. Right. Um, now, compared to more, um, I guess, more prominently known coronaviridae that Dylan mentioned earlier, so like SARS and MERS, um, SARS-CoV-2 is within the same subgenus as SARS. Um, it's more distantly related to MERS, and that's one of the reasons we'll get into later why um, we're basing a lot of our investigational therapies and treatment approaches um, off of data that we obtained during SARS outbreak in the early 2000s. Now, moving on to the mode of transmission. So this virus is predominantly spread, we know, um, person to person, and predominantly by respiratory droplets. So things like coughing, sneezing, um, talking to other people, anything that can enable viral delivery through respiratory secretion, or um, important to remember, contact with contaminated surfaces. For example, like touching a doorknob and then rubbing your eyes. It's unknown currently whether this whether uh, SARS-CoV-2 is spread via uh, airborne disease. Um, we, we do know from one study that the virus has been seen to be viable in aerosols under experimental conditions, um, but that data is still very limited. And so currently airborne precautions aren't in place um, nationally, but several other countries have implemented them as part of routine care. The important thing for, for sort of a, a national public health perspective is to remember that if we take respiratory precautions pretty seriously, we should remember that respiratory secretions can travel as far, in this case, as six feet. And so uh, the CDC recommends a minimum distance of six feet between you and any other person. Moving on to the pathophysiology of the virus, and this is sort of an interesting, um, interesting phenomenon. So if everybody remembers the RAS system, the RAS system, you know, you might seem kind of unrelated, but... Yeah, Matt, are you talking about kidney stuff? I mean, it's a, it'll be, it's going to play. And in, blood pressure? I promise you, it'll make That's sense. crazy. <laughs> so, RAS system, right? So, everybody remembers, like, renin is released from the kidneys, right? The glomerular apparatus, all of that. And renin goes and converts angiotensinogen, which is made in the liver, to angiotensin 1, uh, which is then converted to angiotensin 2 by the ACE enzyme that lives in the lungs. Well, it turns out that enzyme is predominantly ACE1. But there's a second enzyme called ACE2 that converts angiotensin 1 into, um, into other forms of angiotensin um, that kind of downregulate inflammatory processes. And SARS-CoV-2 takes advantage of this mechanism because it binds to the ACE2 receptor, which is uh, interestingly uh, X-linked or located on the X chromosome genetically. Uh, and it binds to the ACE2 receptor on respiratory epithelium cells using a spike protein that is found on the virus's membrane. What happens is that the ACE2 enzyme receptor is going to cleave the spike protein, which then uncovers a binding motif that allows the virus to enter the cell and, and cause a systemic infection. And this receptor is found in cells throughout the body, which might explain why we're seeing um, reports of it also being shedded in feces. And the evidence for that um, it's a little bit shaky, but it comes from some initial case reports, one notable case report from Tang et al., uh, and as well as the China CDC Weekly, which has shown that you know, the, 
they've been able to isolate the virus and found it to be viable in stool samples. Um, although experts currently don't believe fecal oral transmission is a significant player in community spread at this point, mm -hmm. at least not within the United States. Now, sort of a more important notion we should mention is the incubation period of this virus. And so um, there's been multiple studies out there that have kind of tried to measure and track it down. Uh, one study that's kind of notable comes from Annals, and Annals Internal Medicine, um, Laura et al. published a study called What is the Estimated Incubation Period of COVID-19? And uh, what they found among 181 cases of confirmed SARS-CoV-2 infection was that the median incubation period was about 5.1 days. Now, currently, the um, recommended quarantine period that's put out nationally is 14 days. And that would be, according to this study, within uh, the 99th percentile. And so, um, in other words, people who have quarantined themselves for 14 days and have not shown any prevalence of presence of symptoms, um, it would be very highly unlikely that they would have been infected. Um, and so, perhaps a safe, safer kind of notion to go by. Yeah, I think it's helpful just to know that that period of two weeks uh, was actually numerically derived. I wonder if. Uh, People just think that two weeks was a, an arbitrary number, uh, but it's actually consistent with uh, what we would ex uh, what the numbers are showing would be uh, really out to the 99th percentile in terms of length of, of incubation of the virus. Right. Now, uh, another point to kind of mention that's kind of important to the virology picture is the virus's infectiousness. Um, we remember, remember initially when this virus came out, um, you know, it was all over the news and people were really comparing it to the flu and thinking that it was just quote unquote like a really bad flu. Um, it's interesting because when we talk about infectiousness um, from an epidemiological standpoint, we use a variable called R0, which is uh, defined as the number of cases on average an infected person will cause during their infectious period. So for example, if I became infected and I went out into the world and started talking to people and things like that, how many people I would infect on average while I was sick would be considered the R naught for that virus, right? If I was an average person, uh, which I totally am, I'm totally average. So, <laughs> oh, you're extra average, man. <laughs> Thanks. So, with R naught, uh, our estimates from the most recent statistical models uh, predict an R naught of 1.3, sorry, 1.5 to 3.5 for the coronavirus. Now compare that to influenza A or the seasonal flu, um, that R0 is around 1.3. So by our, even our most conservative estimates, this virus is substantially more infectious and more contagious mm. than seasonal flu. There's also evidence that the viral load tends to be higher near the symptom onset versus later in the disease course, which would suggest that people are most infectious early on the disease, um, particularly when symptoms first begin to appear. So how does this disease present? And that's kind of really the interesting thing that kind of, I, I mean, in my mind, separates COVID-19 from uh, influenza. It's just that it, the presentation is so variable. Um, so we noticed that classically, people who are infected present with symptoms that are consistent with any viral pneumonia, right? So to, the, in the details of that, we will discuss in a moment. Severe disease, on the very end of the spectrum, we see most commonly in older adults, like particularly 65 years of age or older, and those with comorbid conditions. And the ones that have been studied 
thus far include hypertension, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and cerebrovascular disease. Now that's one, set, one spectrum, but on the other end of the spectrum, um, many people we find have also presented asymptomatically. So we, uh, and this, this kind of uh, really something that we see from data that comes out of South Korea, um, because South Korea has adopted a practice of testing everybody, whereas in most other countries, including the United States, due to the limited nature of testing kits, we, are only, we can only afford to test people who have symptoms and who are um, who have particularly severe disease. But in South Korea, they've tested everyone. And what they find is that um, there's actually a huge percentage of young adults, so 30% in one study, um, within the age bracket of 20 to 29 years of age, who tested positive for the virus, but did not show symptoms. And that suggests, that data would suggest that young adults, while they might present asymptomatically, continue to play a huge role in community spread simply by virtue of their susceptibility to contracting the virus. And now I'm, I'm um, just struggling to remember, but I feel like I've heard that just in general, uh, there will be more cases that are asymptomatic than symptomatic. Is that is that fair to say? I think so. Yeah. yeah. Um, so next thing that we wanted to talk about was, um, so someone has COVID, well, what does that look like? And I think we've been kind of debating back and forth, Matt and I, about uh, what exactly a COVID patient might look like. I guess granted that we haven't really seen one ourselves yet, but these are just uh, some of the report of the um, frequency of symptoms um, that are seen in confirmed cases, uh, really with the biggest ones being uh, fever uh, and a dry cough. We see fever in up to 89% of cases, uh, and dry cough in about 68%. Um, there are other symptoms, including um, sore throat, seen about 14% of the time, um, and then also uh, like muscle aches, myalgias, um, are seen uh, in a fair number of cases. And that data is coming from the, uh, the New England Journal of Medicine. Right, the study by Wei Jae Guan et al. And uh, I think it's titled Clinical Characteristics of Coronavirus. Yes, that's exactly it. Thank you for giving me that citation. Um, one interesting stat that um, I'd also seen was that, uh, and this is, makes diagnosis tricky, is that half of the patients who initially presented um, were afebrile, uh, which even though they would later develop a fever in the course of their disease, um, they had other presenting symptoms which led them to the hospital, uh, but it made it would kind of delay the diagnosis of COVID, um, given that the fever is such a, a strong component of it. But um, you know, early on uh, in the first couple of days, a fever might not be present. Um, there was a recent study um, from Pan et al. in the American Journal of Gastroenterology uh, that uh, had seen about uh, half of uh, COVID positive patients that they uh, examined did have GI symptoms as a chief complaint, um, although usually these were never uh, in the absence of respiratory symptoms. Uh, other stats that I've seen uh, recorded it a little bit lower, um, but it sounds like GI symptoms can still be implicated in COVID-19, but is um, almost never uh, without a 
concurrent respiratory symptoms. Uh, now, uh, these do all sound like the things that uh, would um, are similar to a viral syndrome, like seen in influenza infection, um, but where the COVID virus is particularly dangerous is in its ability to cause a viral pneumonia and uh, really the number one cause of death in these patients is from acute respiratory distress syndrome or ARDS. Um, and this is, uh, other causes of death can include a secondary infection, arrhythmias, or going into shock. Um, and really these um, uh, more severe sequelae of the disease are, are, are all a result of a, um, a pretty terrible uh, cytokine storm, upregulation of the uh, inflammatory response. And what uh, has been seen in a lot of patients is a spike in IL-6 production, which is a pro-inflammatory marker. It's known to um, stimulate the bone marrow to um, produce leukocytes in addition to other cell lines. So uh, it's really that infection with the virus um, in and of itself uh, will cause some level of damage, but that in the patients who are really suffering the most is when their um, immune response kind of goes off the rails and uh, is then does more harm than good. Now, uh, in terms of wor working up these patients, again, fever, uh, cough, and shortness of breath are really the three cardinal symptoms to be looking for. And then in terms of lab findings, there are a couple of characteristic values. Um, actually, one, uh, one number that I, I, wasn't, I didn't really expect to see at first uh, that I find pretty interesting is that um, in the CBC that you know, any hospitalized patient is going to get, uh, lymphopenia, a low leukocyte count, is actually the most common, or low lymphocyte count, I should say. It's seen in 83% of cases. Um, and it, you know, tip, our teaching usually tells us that um, there is a, an upregulation of, or an uptick in the number of white blood cells, but actually in this case, it's more, most often the lymphopenia. We do also see other elevated inflammatory markers like LDH and ferritin. And then uh, there is a kind of characteristic uh, radiologic findings on a chest CT, um, particularly the ground glass opacities that are really kind of seen in lots of other types of viral pneumonias. So uh, that might not be a huge surprise, but it is uh, fitting with this disease. Um, and then uh, in terms of the uh, diagnostic assays for, um, for COVID itself, um, it is a, uh, I think there's a reverse transcription PCR or there's, and there's also a qualitative PCR uh, assay that is usually taken from um, a nasopharyngeal swab to just like the flu swab. Um, and I think that is actually that you tend to have viral copies in the nasopharynx a little bit longer than the oropharynx. Uh, and um, those are in constant development. Um, I think like both Chinese CDC, the United States CDC, um, different academic labs in the country uh, are all working on optimizing and re-optimizing these um, molecular tests for diagnosis uh, and with trying to get sensitivities down to very low levels, but then also trying to scale up 
um, the availability of testing because we know that is really one of the um, uh, major downfalls that we've experienced thus far in the United States is not having the availability of testing to do. Um, I was watching a, a grand rounds given by uh, investigators at Massachusetts General Hospital and uh, one of the calls was for um, also developing serologic testing for this disease um, to really help track um, the overall prevalence because at a certain point if someone is has an asymptomatic infection or a mild infection and they clear um, we're not going to be able to um, determine if they had ever been exposed with a with a PCR-based assay. That's really where serology is going to come in. And to my knowledge, nothing um, of that nature has been developed just yet. Um, so yeah, that's kind of where we're at in terms of. Uh, oh, and then um, <laughs> and then one other thing um, which may uh, make sense to think about is in terms of prognostication uh, of patients and uh, what's seen on uh, their lab values. Chen et al. Uh, from The Lancet found that patients uh, with a higher D-dimer uh, and severe lymphopenia had a higher mortality risk, which um, again points to uh, higher levels of inflammation but lower levels of uh, adaptive immune response to to handle uh, to counterbalance it. Thanks, Ellen. That was really really informative. Um, one other thing I would add, also, because what I think I read somewhere that um, so definitely the symptoms are very consistent with viral pneumonia that we see in other cases, um, including the chest CT findings. But there is some um, interesting sort of unique findings or semi unique findings that might help to um, kind of play a more of like a radiological signature for COVID-19. And that is these ground glass opacities that we see tend to be bilateral and involve the lower lobes and kind of a peripheral distribution. Okay. Now let's move on to management. So I think that's something that, um, you know, is sort of still very much in flux. Um, and that's partly due to the nature of this disease. We, we mentioned how the disease presentation exists on a spectrum, right? And so clearly management will differ depending on where on that spectrum our patients present. So if someone is asymptomatic, um, the best piece of advice that we give them um, that we can give them would be to follow these CDC guidelines that we have. So self-isolation, quarantine, 14 days, um, being careful not to contaminate other people. Hand washing. Hand washing. 20 seconds. Right. Um, As a quick side note, I, I am, I'm plugging, I know everyone says you should try to wash your hands to the uh, length of the happy birthday song. Uh, or really, you should pick whatever song you think is your favorite. And I think there's a meme generator online where you can uh, time out your favorite song lyrics to the different steps of uh, hand washing that you should be at. I can uh, try to find that for you, Matt. Oh, yeah, totally. I, I'm always down to learn more songs. <laughs> um, but right, so like common sense measures for people who are asymptomatic and even people with mild infections. Um, if you have to be in public, wear a mask. Um, it's not currently recommended that everyone in the United States wear masks, um, especially if you are not infected. But for people who are infected, who for whatever reason um, have to be outside for a limited period of time, wear a mask. That way, um, there's a higher chance that the respiratory droplets that um, you produce do not infect others around you. And if you can't wear a mask, this is um, where the six feet of distance really comes into play because uh, 
initial. I'm not even really sure where this came from, but it seems like the the respiratory droplets should kind of fade off with gravity at about six feet. So anyone in that six feet foot bubble uh, could be hit with with an air droplet. But if you're beyond that, then uh, things should be okay. Right. Do you remember our physics physics classes and um, evidence of like projectile physics? Um, we won't get into the details right now, probably because we don't remember them. Not at all. Um, but we did have to know them at one point very well for our MCAT. So um, hopefully that will suffice. <laughs> now, I'm um, talking about severe infections. Severe infections is sort of a different beast entirely. Um, so we think about severe infection as warranting hospital admission um, and initiation of both isolation precautions, obviously, and supportive measures that should really include oxygen therapy delivered through different medium. Um, most commonly high flow or non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. The decisions to admit someone inpatient really should be made on a case-by-case basis, um, including whether or not uh, or how likely they are to spread the disease if we send them home. Um, we also have to think about, you know, when people are have only have only mild infections or asymptomatic coming to the hospital to get tested, they are really going to... Um, be, there's a higher chance that they'll be exposed to the virus um, or higher viral load while in the emergency department. And we also have to consider that many people who are hospitalized who don't have COVID-19 are at higher risk the more people who have COVID-19 are, are sharing bed or sharing rooms with them. Or not rooms, I guess, but like hospital floors. Right. Now, the development of acute respiratory distress syndrome um, or ARDS, which Dylan mentioned earlier, the, the most common uh, cause of mortality from COVID-19. Now, that would require intubation with mechanical ventilation. Although ECMO, or extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, is an alternative if hypoxia becomes persistent. Now, I want to touch on something that Dylan mentioned earlier with this uh, interleukin-6 pathway, because um, you know many people think of diseases kind of that are inflammatory in nature like this um, people think about steroids commonly, and they're like, oh, you know, why, if IL-6 is sort of causing all these problems, um, should we just fill, like, fill our patients up with steroids and downregulate that, that immune response? Um, maybe that'll be helpful. And it turns out that that, that actually can do more harm than good. Mm-hmm. So we don't know that specifically for COVID-19, but we do know that for other infections, um, particularly historically, it's, it's been used historically in MERS infections, and uh, glucocorticoids in that setting have been found to uh, actually prolong viral replication. And so for that reason, the CDC currently does not recommend a routine use of glucocorticoids for COVID-19, although exceptions do play out for standard care for comorbid conditions, like for example, asthma or COPD. A couple other things that have sort of been uh, interesting and kind of more recent in the news cycle. Um, So there were concerns initially about using ACE inhibitors kind of going back to the pathophysiology that we talked about with the ACE2 enzyme. Um, we discussed the importance of that receptor in the entry pathway for SARS-CoV-2. And it turns out animal studies have demonstrated that the use of ACE inhibitors or even ARBs, um, such as those that we see commonly employed for standard practice in hypertension or heart failure or ischemic heart disease management, um, they actually upregulate ACE2 receptors within heart cells. And so naturally, this has sort of prompted some speculation among the medical community of whether ACE inhibitors as a class should be avoided in the setting of COVID-19, but multiple organizations, including the AHA and the American College of Cardiology, have really come together to stress that these, type, these fears are not supported by current data, 
um, and our understanding of the complex RAS system. And I think that makes a lot of sense as well because one uh, key component to fighting off a uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection is otherwise maintaining uh, a good baseline of health. And so uh, the risks of, of coming off of some of these really vital uh, therapies um, for a lot of people would probably outweigh the benefit of avoiding them. So I think it makes sense to not uh, to not mess with them, um, especially for people who have been on them for a long time. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, definitely do more harm than good to take someone off of that uh, preemptively. Now, now, the other thing that's sort of been more recent, actually, like within this past week, has been the use of ibuprofen. So for those of us who've been watching the news um, and kind of been stuck at home, scrolling through your phones. <laughs> um, and Matt's our Twitter, our Twitter expert. Right. So on Twitter, you might have noticed that the World Health Organization issued a statement on Tuesday, so the 17th of March, um, that advised against ibuprofen usage in the setting of COVID-19. Um, and these were really based off concerns that had been voiced by the French government and a published correspondence by Li Fang et al. from the Lancet Respiratory Medicine. And the, the title of that correspondence was titled, um, Are Patients with Hypertension and Diabetes Mellitus at Increased Risk for COVID-19 Infection? Um, and the answer to that question, as we now know, is yes. But uh, pertinent to this conversation, the authors had suggested that one explanation to the increased prevalence we're seeing in these disease groups could be due to an upregulation of the ACE2 receptor. And so they also noted that ibuprofen has been shown to upregulate the same receptor. And so they speculated whether it might play a contributory role in COVID-19 disease. Now, it's important to recognize that no strong evidence has so far linked NSAID use to worsen COVID-19 illness. Um, and actually, in light of that, in light of the, um, I guess, like increased discussion that uh, this statement generated, the World Health Organization has actually since retracted that recommendation via Twitter, which I suppose is the most common um, medium of communication nowadays. Well, it's definitely where to get uh, a lot of the most up-to-date news. <laughs> now, um, well, there have, so these are a couple of examples of what Matt talked about are of trials of therapies that either aren't going to be effective or have been tried and were shown to be ineffective. Um, there is ongoing work uh, in terms of trying to develop therapeutics for this disease. And that really comes uh, in two flavors. There is uh, one, a uh, repurposing of other antiviral um, pharmaceuticals towards use against SARS-CoV-2. Uh, and then the second arm would be vaccine design. So to quickly speak to the first, the first arm, um, repurposing, there's really been... Um, two types of antiviral drugs that have been uh, trialed to fight SARS-CoV-2, uh, one in the class of um, nucleotide analogs, uh, remdesivir and favipiravir. Um, they're both um, chain terminator substrates that will target the RNA-dependent RNA polymerase that the coronavirus uses for replication um, and will uh, basically prevent the uh, rest of replication uh, from occurring by creating a chain termination. Uh, but, and uh, those I think are still just kind of an ongoing in, uh, in trials. Um, the other major class of antiviral uh, have been the anti, uh, or the protease inhibitors, uh, lopinavir and ritonavir, uh, which were most commonly used in HIV. Um, and it was 
some clinical trials had been uh, undertaken, and notably, actually one that just came out today by Cow et al. in New England Journal of Medicine, um, was a trial of lopinavir and ritonavir uh, in adults hospitalized with severe COVID-19. Um, but using um, splitting, I think it was about, they tried about 200 patients and about half got the um, the combination therapy and half uh, had otherwise regular standard of care. And there was no no statistical benefit shown in using the um, uh, protease inhibitor combination. Uh, and I think it was worth a shot, but one thing that uh, I learned was that Unfortunately, these um, particular types of protease inhibitors don't target the um, the cysteine residues that are or the cysteine proteases um, that uh, the coronavirus family uses in its replication. I think they're more targeted towards serine proteases, um, which is uh, typically what the HIV virus uses. Um, so it was uh, a good attempt at trying to. Uh, you know, reuse some already approved um, therapies, but that unfortunately did not pan out. Um, there are, however, some other um, trials of therapy uh, that are ongoing, one being uh, tocilizumab, which is an anti-IL-6 monoclonal antibody, um, again, targeting that um, pro-inflammatory marker that seems to be so highly implicated in uh, severe disease progression. There's a trial going on in China. Um, there's actually also been some um, preliminary uh, in vitro data of hydroxychloroquine, the anti-malarial, um, that has shown some efficacy. Uh, and uh, one future, um, I think, avenue of trial is also looking at oseltamivir and umefenivir. Uh, oseltamivir, uh, people might be familiar with as Tamiflu. Mm -hmm. um, is which uh, serves to interrupt the uh, hemagglutinin protein on influenza virus. Well, the hope is that it could work in a similar way on the corona hemagglutinin uh, virus membrane. So I think those trials are still yet to be undertaken. Um, but uh, one point that was uh, I just wanted to make clear um, that I think is something that we all understand in drug development, but in our particular race to find effective therapies, is that um, there are a lot of reasons why a potential compound can be seen as efficacious in vitro, but then not um, pan out uh, in uh, in vivo clinical trial settings. Uh, and a lot of times that's because kind of in our in our shotgun approach of experimentation, uh, drugs are often tri uh, trialed at much higher doses than would be um, clinically useful or um, even um, before they would uh, be reaching toxic levels in, in a human. Um, and so uh, that's just a limitation to what the, um, uh, are these, these in vitro findings can, can be. Um, so the, the next thing I wanted to talk about was vaccine design. Um, now there are multiple groups uh, working on developing a vaccine. Uh, and I think a real key part of this is that these different groups are trying different substrates. So there are RNA-based, DNA-based, protein-based, vector-based, and activated virus-based. All these uh, different um, types of vaccines are coming out of different groups. I think one of the most common protein targets is the spike protein because uh, that is such an important part of 
uh, viral entry and, and um, its ability to uh, infect uh, respiratory epithelial cells. Um, and one thing that uh, is not currently um, completely under, or not, I guess it's one potential risk uh, in uh, vaccine development um, is something called antibody-dependent enhancement. It's actually something that is seen in um, dengue virus infection, among others. And it's when uh, the, the types of antibodies that a vaccine produces actually promote faster spread of the virus by kind of carrying it from cell to cell um, as opposed to limiting its in infectability. So that is um, just one challenge that I think vaccine developers are uh, currently aware of in, in, in terms of uh, how quickly that uh, we can come up with a candidate. And uh, again, going back to the grand rounds I was listening to a little bit earlier, I think one of the leaders in the development field uh, warned us that a, a clinically useful vaccine will uh, not likely be available for uh, at least a year. And I think that's a little bit, um, you know, short of what our hopes and expectations would be, especially given that uh, I think a lot of experts are thinking that really curbing this uh, pandemic is going to rely on the development of a vaccine. Uh, and I guess I, I can reassure you all that people are working as hard as humanly possible to get this done, but there are just, uh, you know, limits imposed on all of us in terms of how fast these things can occur. So again, um, even with the best, the heart, you know, the best of intentions, it would likely be uh, about a year away from a clinically useful vaccine. I think that's that's all. That's all I was okay. going to say. Was, was there anything else to say about that? No, that was it. I think I just didn't know how to connect it to the next piece. Here, I, let me try. I can try to lead you in. And so, and I guess, um, and kind of in that note, you know, thinking about all of the people who are working so hard to fight this pandemic. You know, I feel like even myself as a medical student, I don't know, Matt, if you feel the same way, like it's almost kind of hard to be sitting on the sidelines. We know it's the important, it's the best thing for us to do, um, given, you know, our, our, our relative uh, abilities compared to, you know, our, our um, preceptors and, and our teachers. But uh, I think now is actually an especially important time to recognize um, those who, uh, all, all the fighters in this, um, uh, in this pandemic, including our um, work, our our nurses and hospital staff and doctors, uh, and other healthcare providers on the front lines who are you know putting themselves uh, in uh, in jeopardy every time they do go to work, but they are they are um, you know fighting for the common good, and and it's really amazing just to uh, you know hear the stories of how people have banded together to to fight this thing. No, I completely agree, Dylan. I think, um, you know, as medical students, we have an interesting perspective because we see, um, you know, our our future colleagues or I guess our, our like colleagues and and uh, superiors and mentors um, demonstrating kind of this um, the calling of medicine uh, in mm -hmm. ways that are are both heroic and also um, you know some, sometimes frightening. 
Um, and so for that reason, actually, before we conclude this podcast, which we hope has been very helpful to our listeners, um, we do want to reaffirm to all of our listeners the gravity of this pandemic. Um, it is a very serious pandemic. We talked about it's you know, more and more contagious than the flu, high mortality rate, um, it's spreading very rapidly. And we need to recognize that there are many from among the ranks of, uh, from our ranks as uh, physicians and students who have given up everything for their patients. Mm-hmm. Um, so among those physicians actually who have lost their lives fighting COVID-19, um, we only have a few of their names here, but we would like to mention them in this podcast. And those include Italian doctor Roberto Stella and Chinese physicians Peng Yinhua, Li Wenliang, Mai Zongming, and Liu Zuming. Um, may their bravery and love for humanity never be forgotten. We also send thoughts and prayers for two emergency physicians whom the American College of Emergency Physicians reports have been hospitalized as a result of COVID-19. Um, their names are protected for uh, privacy reasons, but we know that one is in the state of New Jersey and the other in the state of Washington. Um, but on that somber note, we want to thank all of you guys for listening. Absolutely. Um, and we hope that this was uh, a decent summary for kind of some of the uh, epidemiology, pathophysiology, clinical presentation, and um, first steps of management, and then uh, hopefully uh, treatments that are coming down the pipeline. Uh, for all of our listeners, we recognize there's still a lot of things that we weren't able to cover in this podcast, and for that, um, we can really uh, recommend checking out the uh, CDC webpage. The, um, the NIH uh, also has a webpage about um, new things that are coming out, and then uh, ACP also has a COVID-19 and ACP Physician's Guide plus resources that is constantly being um, updated with new information and resources. So we encourage you all to check uh, any of those out for further information. Uh, and with that, uh, we will wrap up and just um, say that uh, now that Matt and I are both back in Vermont, uh, we hope to uh, put out a couple more episodes of Green Mountain Medicine in the near future. Um, topics uh, for the future uh, may include uh, a response to the uh, USMLE Step 1 change of scoring to pass-fail, um, other new clinical trials that have um, really shaped gui- recent guidelines in major medical management, including DAPA-HF, the new GOLD 2020 criteria, etc., and uh, and then um, some more guests as well, uh, who you'll have to uh, stay tuned, but we'll, we'll be covering um, such topics as uh, career choices for uh, students interested in internal medicine and um, also updates in hospital medicine or mentorship in internal medicine. Uh, so with that, um, I'm Dylan. I'm Matt. And uh, we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening. That's it for today on Green Mountain Medicine. I'm Matt Sai. And I'm Dylan Conduction. And thanks for tuning in. If you found our discussion enjoyable, please don't forget to follow us on Twitter at ACP underscore Vermont for more podcast updates.